Kathleen Rooney is in the studio with me, Rick Kogan, on this show After Hours. She is fresh from uh, writing, which is a great thing, fresh from writing poetry on State Street. Uh, she is one of the most talented poets around and an astonishingly talented novelist. Uh, we'll talk about all of that. You're just fresh from State Street, aren't you? Yeah, we were at Sundays on State with um, our typewriters, and we wrote 68 poems on demand for people, and it was a lot of fun. Tell me how that works and how that, that Poems While You Wait was, was born. Yes. So it was born in 2011 in Chicago when my friend Dave Landsberger and my friend Eric Plattner and I decided to do this thing that Dave had done back in Miami where he was in graduate school, where you just set up on the street, you put out your typewriter, you put out a sign-up sheet, and people give you their name, a topic, and a suggested donation, and then they go wander away for a little bit, and then when they come back in 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, you have a poem on that topic. And today, for instance, we wrote poems about cheese we wrote poems about <laughs> chicago in the rain we wrote poems about first year of college so and topical so i know topical. and we wrote like a dozen love poems which i never get sick of people come up and say i want a love poem yes and sometimes that's all they say and other times they say it's my girlfriend her name's selma she loves to garden so we can work with anything do you write it individually or do you collab or collaboratively both usually it's individual it's kind of a you know first come first serve you put your name on the list and we sort of tag team like whoever's free just like grabs the list grabs the topic whether they want the topic or know anything about it um if it's slower we'll collab it'll be like a benihana situation where we're like throwing the typewriters back and forth uh what is what's an average donation kathleen Rooney? yeah we ask for um we suggest 10 that's our donation all the money goes to rose metal press which is a 501c3 literary nonprofit that puts out books that i co-run um but it's interesting a lot of times people tip above and beyond oh i'm sure um, they we've do. gotten i think the highest we've gotten for a single poem so far um is a hundred dollars well, so well, it, people are generous and they say that poets don't make money i know uh it's a it's a challenging thing, is it not for you? Yeah, it's um I think that's why many of us like to do it is it gets us out of our typical wheelhouses and you have to write about something whether you're in the mood or not. Well, one of the things I want to talk to you about the, the your latest book is Where Are the Snows? It is a prize-winning book uh published by the University of is it Texas. Where is it? Yeah, Texas Review Press. Texas Review Press. And this collection was selected from, I've got to think, hundreds of other selections? Yes. It, it's a big honor. It's um, I'll, I'll do a, a plug for the prize in case there's any poets listening. It's a $10,000 annual prize. It's the X.J. Kennedy Prize, named after the great poet X.J. Kennedy, who's in his 90s but is still alive and kicking. And, um, yeah, if you win it, the contest judge will write you a nice blurb, and they'll pay you the money and put out – I mean, it's radio, so you can't see, but the, the book is gorgeous. It's they beautiful. A beautiful it, job. You know, it really is beautiful. How does one balance – I know that writers throughout history – have balanced writing poetry and novels and poetry and nonfiction. What is the balance for you? Ah, oh, that's a great question. I what think came, what, what came, in your in your literary life? What came first? Poetry. Poetry came first. Um, my parents, shout out to my parents who I think are at a wedding now, but we'll listen later <laughs> <laughs> to the archived version. Um, they always had books in the house, but to their credit, they um, didn't skip poetry. I think a lot of people are intimidated by poetry. No question. My are parents you? were like, read poetry. 
Wow. I think they're intimidated in, in large part because of the way poetry has traditionally been taught. Yes. Memorize this. Here's a Shakespeare sonnet. Not that Shakespeare is any slouch poet. Here's a Shakespeare sonnet. Memorize this. Yep, yep. And without without any understanding that's great when did you write your first poem then as a child uh yeah as a kid i you know a story that um i like to tell because i think it it speaks to how much i wanted to be a writer and how supportive my parents were is that i before i could write like before i even was literate i was writing quote-unquote poems and so my mom got a tape recorder child of the 80s and recorded me reciting my little poems and telling my little stories because she she wanted to help me document it and how empowering was that? It was, yeah, yeah it was I'll amazing. Bet. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. So how do you split time now? Uh, we'll talk about your upcoming novel because it is, it's very timely and consider, yeah. concerns someone I knew, for goodness sake. And your other one about a, a pigeon. Yes. I'm calling it the pigeon novel. That is one of the best things I've read in as long as I can remember. I raved about it before. You people out there can go back and, and go in the archives and find the interview. I just raved about it. How do you, how do you balance that? You also teach. Yeah, yeah. I um, I like to be busy. I'm one of these people who, when you have nothing to do, you do nothing. So for me, a busy schedule, like the more I do, the more I do. Um, but I will say, honestly, when I'm writing a novel like, you know, Share on Me, which you were mm-hmm. an amazing interview on, or Lillian Boxfish, that's all I can do. Like, aside from, I can do the poems while you wait, but my head is fully in that world. God, can you do the poems while you wait while you're working on a novel? Yes, I can. Cause, and I like that because it gives me breaks. But when I'm writing my own poetry, like in Where Are the Snows, um, I have to kind of be between projects. I can only imagine. I'm going to read one of the, how many are in here? 20, 30. Yeah, there's 39. 39 poems in here, and they are all, all delightful and incisive and about life but they're also a great deal of fun too we'll carry on with kathleen rooney who you can uh, find at kathleenrooney.com we'll be back kathleen rooney just told me off air that the poems in where are the snows her prize-winning collection uh, were written in a, I don't want to call it a frenzy, but in, in a uh, in a pandemic time of April 2020. Did you just say to yourself, I need to write some poems? Is that how? Is- yeah, great question. Um, credit where it's due. My friend Kimberly Southwick, another great poet, uh, runs an annual Poem a Day group in April. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge people give themselves. Poetry for, month. Poetry yeah, month, for yeah. years I'd said no, and that year she asked if I wanted to do it, and I didn't know it was going to be a pandemic, but I said, yeah, I think I can make time, and I didn't realize how much time we would all have. Uh, was it challenging? It was, but it was good. I, I will say that, I mean, it literally got me out of bed in the morning. I'm going to read one, and then I want to hear from you about the inspiration for this one. It's titled Pastoral. Uh, Lake Michigan churns like a washing machine today. Buckets of rain mean I remain indoors. The distant thunder of the toilet flushing. The sky out the window, a moody adolescent. When was the last time I just sat by a tree? Why do the woods have a neck anyway? A week past the vernal equinox, it stays too cold for green bugs or bugs. When it comes to alcohol and cookies, why are grasshoppers minty? Convalis is a gnarly name, gnarly for me, uh, for morning glory. Rankulka, same, but for buttercups. In Chicago, we call plastic bags blowing across the sidewalk jewel tumbleweeds. 
The wind runs up the street on invisible feet. Its breath is the shepherd, the debris, its sheep. There won't be any sunset to speak of today, but all it would have is et un Arcadia ego. Canadian geese make a V in the sky, a reminder that in the end, victory shall be theirs. Stare too long at a screen and the heart grows pathetic, misanthropic hamster jogging on a wheel. Can idle merriment nymphs and swains ever attain on purpose what nature achieves spontaneously? When I can't visit nature, nature visits me, the fattest sparrow on the bare ash tree. That's really a lovely poem. There's a, there's a lot going on in there. Can I ask what inspired that poem? Yeah. Look, looking out the window? Yeah, literally looking out the window. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to say it's just like a pandemic collection, but um, it was written then, and I feel like it reflects that sort of um, like claustrophobic feeling of the times and trying to make the most of whatever is in your immediate orbit. And I mean, even the ash tree, probably tree lovers know, like all throughout Chicago, the emerald ash borer is killing all the ash trees. So, yeah. you know, there used to be an ash tree just dead outside my window. So I wrote about it. When you write poetry, when you write a poem like that, I think there's a feeling, a general uh, misconception on the part of the public that a poem comes to one fully formed. That cannot possibly, possibly be the case. It can't be, well, yeah, okay, wrote that, that's done, file it away. No, it's a process. And I would say for me, it's kind of like I'm always writing a poem. I'm a notebook keeper. Um, Joan Didion has that great essay on keeping a notebook where she yeah. says people uh. who keep notebooks are magpies. And, you know, if you're a bird fan, you know, magpies are famous for supposedly picking up, you know, various little shiny things and trash for their nests or just saving it for later. And so I keep a notebook that way where even if it seems like its purpose is mysterious, I'll throw it in. And then when I sit down to write a poem, it's a combination of of a present inspiration mixed with some of that past collecting that and I've do you, done. you revise of course i do yeah i'm a big fan of time i you know as much as i love poems while you wait where there is no revision i consider that its own genre it's like jazz sure. or improv it, yeah, sure. Um, sure but for a, a solo poem um i'm a huge fan of almost like waiting until you're a different person like till your future self who is a different person than the self that wrote the poems can come back and kind of fix what your past self did. So I waited like seven months before I revised these. By fix, I'm, I'm taken with that word. By fix, what do you mean? I think, um, you know, like there's Wordsworth's kind of, um, you know, spontaneous emotion recollected in quiet tranquility. And so I think the spontaneous emotion is great, whatever the impulse, whatever got you stoked to sit down and type up your poem. But sometimes it has an overmuchness. Sometimes you just need to turn it down. Like it's not like when everything's up to 11, it becomes its own kind of monotony. So you want to, you know, modulate. Tell me about the difference in the in the the energy involved in writing poems and writing fiction. Uh, poems, in, in essence, are fiction, but, but yeah, but yeah. In a in a book, do you, 
do you set a sort of schedule for yourself in working on a novel? Yeah. For instance? Yeah. What's so funny is um, with the poetry, <clears throat> I had a set schedule. Like every morning, it was the first thing I would do, you know, after like getting up, brushing my teeth, meditating, doing some light calisthenics. It would be like into the document and I would be done by lunchtime. So poetry for me lately has been more scheduled. And I think that's because poetry is a sprint where to me, I just yeah. like run as fast as I can. And a novel is an absolute marathon. Well, it's an absolute marathon for you because well, well I'm going to talk about uh, about Jeremy and Major uh, Whittlesley. There's so much research involved in that book. T- tell the the potential yeah. readers out there again how how that book was born. I was fascinated with the birth of that book. Yeah, so um, Jeremy and Major Whittlesey, the you know title characters are who it's about. One is a pigeon and one is a soldier. It's a World War One story based on a true story. And I had a student, maybe he's listening, mm-hmm. Brian Michich, I teach at uh, DePaul, and he mentioned Cher Ami in a poem he wrote for my class and said, look it up, because I'm always telling my students to look things up. Hey, give um, me an A and look yes. it up. So look it up. I did the assignment. Brian told me to look it up, and I found all about Cher Ami, who's this Little Pigeon, I'll, I'll say to the readers, look it up. Um, she's stuffed. She's in the Smithsonian, and she saved a group of soldiers called the Lost Battalion. And I knew as soon as I looked it up that I had to write about her. One of the the hallmarks of that book and one of the, the most powerful things about that novel is the voice of the pigeon. I'm sure people out there are going, wait a minute, pigeon can't talk. What, how could she do a pigeon in a pigeon? How difficult was that for you, or did did it come to you? Was it a kind of organic thing? Yeah. Was it was it your initial idea to do that? Was it? Yeah, I knew right away because the two characters are so inextricably intertwined in this historical event that I had to hear from both of them. And I think, I don't know, what's interesting to me, I think a lot of artists retain a certain connection to a childlike state and when you're a child you read so many books like charlotte's web is the big example that are about animals and right right right. you hear from animals and animals have personalities yeah and voices and so it wasn't that weird to me i have a lot of readers i know it's it's hard i know a lot of people don't like pigeons i know there's the whole rats with wings (laughs) but they're not they're amazing and so i you know i encourage people to to get to impressed yes. by pigeons. To learn more, and you will learn to appreciate. Uh, that book uh, was stunning to me, and it did it did well in this weird publishing environment, yeah. did it not? Yeah, yeah. It seemed like it found its readers. Um, I definitely, I still hear from people. It came out almost exactly two years ago, and um, we were reminiscing off air. I, I did this show, and now I'm in the studio. Again, it's radio. You can't see, but we did that interview. I was on my sad little cell phone in my kitchen because we were still isolated. Um, so, yeah, it's fun to put a book out now into a world where we can actually see people again. Now, do you expect to to do some some signings and talking about, uh, yes. about this collection? Do you know? I do. In fact, um, if people are interested, I will be at the bookseller in Lincoln Square. A on- great bookstore yeah wednesday the 21st at 7 p.m um with two other local writers uh timothy moore and jessica ann and then uh, about a week after that on thursday the 29th i will be at pilsen community books with the uh wonderful poet ananda lima 
You can get all this kind of information at KathleenRooney.com, and you can also buy her books there. Uh, I want to talk, uh, after I'm keeping you for a few more minutes, through the news about the, certainly about your teaching. And you also do book reviewing, and you have a wonderful literary, I think, juggling act going on here. Uh, you want it that way, do you not? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to be like a person of letters. I It's the thing I love most of all, so I feel very grateful that I'm able to like Tetris in all the different little pieces. And you live with a writer. Yes. Uh, shout out to my spouse, Martin C. His book is The Mirror Thief. I am biased, but I think it's fabulous. If you want a big, old, 600-page sort of literary thriller, he's your man. I just gave Brett a 550-page book, uh, Heat 2, by Michael Mann, and uh, he collaborated with someone. Uh, you teach at DePaul. How long have you been doing that? I started at DePaul in 2010, so it's wow. been, I know, it's been a long time. Um, and it feels weird because I passed my 10-year anniversary of teaching during the pandemic, yeah, so it almost yeah. felt like it didn't happen. Um, but we're starting at DePaul on the 7th, so on Wednesday. In, and person. in person. In person. Yeah, I love teaching. It's like a, you know, the first poem in this collection is called Dress Up, um, right, and right, I love right. to dress up and kind of teaching to me is a performance in the best possible way. I just want people to be entertained and educated, so I can't wait to get back to the the show what do you teach i this quarter i'm it's a good representation creative writing mm-hmm. we do all the genres i do english 101 which is a class that i call ladies night and ladies is in quotes because we interrogate what it means to be a lady and we read um all the major texts are by women um just to think about the canon and then i teach a class this quarter called writing the body where we do any kind of writing anything having to do with the body like sports sex drugs illness anything sounds like something i should take uh we will be back after the news and talk a little bit more i want to talk about the chicago literary community because you were an active act you and martin are active players in that so i hope you stay tuned you might while you're listening to the news go to kathleenrooney.com and learn more about her otherwise just uh lay back have a drink and stay tuned. Welcome back. I have a few more minutes with uh, Kathleen Rooney near the end of her, at the very end of her wonderful uh, prize-winning poetry collection, Where Are the Snows, from which I read, and which is really has a terrific, wonderful, playful cover, sort of the road to hell is on the cover. You, you thank, you say here, you thank a number of people here, and, but you thank... Thanks as well to the city of Chicago and the generosity of its literary community. You are not from Chicago. You have been here for some time. Uh, You certainly know literary communities around the country. Chicago's is rich, nurturing, and uh, every other thing it should be, is it not? Yeah, it's a very hospitable place to be a writer. I think it has all of the excitement and diversity of, like, an even bigger city or, um, you know, like an international city, which it is, of course, but it's so livable. And I think for me as a writer, I need that balance. Like I would, I think, really struggle um, in a city like L.A. or New York or even Washington, D.C., where I've lived, which are industry towns. And I think there's just something here where it's... um, I don't know, a friend of mine put it once, more of a community, less of an economy. So people are really interested in people um, and not just, uh, you know, like making money or making a name for themselves. And I think that makes a difference. 
Well, it, it is inordinately supportive, as well as having a number of, still, a number of great independent bookstores, too, which is a, the lifeblood, I think, yes. of the publishing scene. Yeah, well, and, you know, Bill Savage, who we were kind of talking about off yeah. the air, too, talks about sort of like um, this concept of literary infrastructure. Um, and if you're on Twitter, you see Bill and a bunch of us do this thing called Manhole Cover Monday, where we tweet oh, pictures of, course, of manholes, because sure. we love infrastructure literal infrastructure like we live by lake michigan but if we didn't have a system that got it to us and that got the dirty water away from us what good would lake michigan be and i think to your point about the bookstores and what i love about the chicago community is not only is it a great place for writers to sit quietly and thrive and you know be able to live while they make their work then when they're ready to get it out into the world there's all these people formally and informally um you know who support you from you know the booksellers to the book reviewers to you know the bookstagram like so many of my students now do like TikTok books, they're book talkers. So there's just this real infrastructure of people who want to like help tell the world about your book once it's out. As a teacher, what do you think of the voice? And it's a very stupid question in a way, but the collective voice of the upcoming generation, those kids who are in creative writing classes at DePaul. Yeah, I so they're technically Gen Z now. They're Zoomers. Um, You know, all of my students, with I think very few exceptions, were born after 2000, which is bonkers. Um, And I I think they're really smart and I think they're really funny. I think their voice is, I would say, self-aware and not afraid of the darkness that so many of us are facing in the world. But they also seem to want to have a good time on the page, which I think is Well, it'd be very great. interesting, I think, for you doing face-to-face classes starting when? This week, Wednesday? Yeah, Wednesday. I can't wait to meet them. I don't know what the vibe's going to be, but I'll, I'll report back. 